Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And welcome to episode 156 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. This week with my guest, Phil Anderson, Australian cycling legend, Tour de France gold jersey winner, Phil Anderson. Follow him on Twitter at Skippy, S-K-I-P-P-Y underscore Anderson. Mr. Anderson. Oh, I need to watch The Matrix again. Thank you so much for being here. A uh, big thank you to everybody that supports the show on Patreon. I hope if you support the show on Patreon, you get a nice warm glow in your tummy, a warm fuzzy that makes you feel good about yourself because of you, I'm able to pay Andy and Andy is able to make this show. Uh, without you and Andy, this show wouldn't exist in 2016. So thank you so, so very much. You can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash Osher. And while you're there, you can get the uh, beautiful feeling inside that you're also getting access to exclusive episodes made only for you. Uh, also, every week, uh, for that's for as little as five bucks a month. For as little as five bucks a month. You can give more if you can. Uh, but for as little as five bucks a month, you get access to exclusive episodes. A uh, big thank you to all the people that left a review of the show this week. I would love it if you, even if you listen to the show every week, it really helps me a lot if you review the show on iTunes. That helps a lot more people see and find out about the show. And um, more people that listen to the show, the better guests I can get. So it's all, it's all a big circle of life, as Elton John would have said. So uh, each week I give away the current batch of exclusive episodes to one person who has left a review. And this week it goes to Art Vandalay of Vandalay Industries, I believe. Um, Art, I want you to uh, email me. Please send us your email at gmail.com. 
You left a review on the 17th of October 2016. And thank you, man or woman. You have uh, scored yourself a bunch of exclusive episodes. I'll send you a zip file. A long-time fan of the podcast. Each conversation is inspiring, intelligent, relatable, engaging, and entertaining. I look forward to Osh's check-in each week, which has helped me get through some tough times. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Art. Thank you so, so much. I'm really grateful. Um, those things are exactly what I wanted the show to be, inspiring, intelligent, relatable, engaging, and entertaining. Thanks heaps. Big week in the podcast. We um, we filmed our first one the other day. It was very exciting, seeing if we can't make something visual out of this. You know, we can. Well, we can't. I don't know. We've got to try. We're going to see what happens. We're going to see what happens with the, with the long-form video. But, yeah, we managed to, to get one up, and it was really exciting. It was really exciting, actually. did it the other day. Uh, thank you also very much to everybody that sent in a podsy, hashtag P-O-D-S-I-E. Super cool. Just basically whip out the phone. I watch on the stats, 49.8% of you listen on an iPhone. So I don't quite know how it works on the on the uh, Samsung devices or other devices, HTCs and things. But whip out the phone you're listening to this on right now and uh, snap a photo of whatever you're looking at while you're listening. Yeah, I've got great podsies of dishes, of laundry, of sleeping children, of the Champs-Élysées the other day. That was nice. Uh, wherever you are in the world, uh, send me a podsie uh, on Snapchat or Instagram or Twitter or email, wherever. Uh, it's really nice to uh, for other people as well to see where everybody else listens to the show. If you're driving, please pull over. I do get a lot of weird comments when people go, that person has, has said, okay, they're going to photo from the driver's seat. Your listeners are breaking the law. Don't break the law. Don't get hurt. Just use common sense, please. Please. I love you and I want you to keep listening and not have a car crash. Some great shows coming up. Um, I did uh, a couple of good ones this week and I'm in Melbourne next week. So plenty of shows that I couldn't otherwise do with people that are based in Melbourne, I'm going to go down and do, which I'm very, very excited. So there's a bunch of great shows on the way. Hope your week was good. It's the last few weeks of Bachelorette. Thank you to everybody that's watching, everybody that's playing along on Twitter. Uh, I'm starting, it's, it's busy, busy times, but it's good. Radio at the moment is super fun. I'm, I'm loving, I'm very lucky to get up in the morning and do something that I love to do every day. And radio is... It's just one of those things I love to do, love radio. And, um, I mean, clearly I'm here doing a podcast for you, uh, but it's great. I absolutely love working with Stav and Abby. They're the best people ever. Um, I'm very, very lucky to get up and do something that I love every morning. And I remember that when the alarm goes off at 4 a.m. But, yeah, I've had jobs that I've resented, as I'm sure you have. I've had jobs that I've gone to and realised that um, while it may look like I'm performing a task, or doing something that's within my skill set to complete, I'm actually bent over a couch taking the paycheck from behind. <laughs> Sorry for that visual, but um, yeah, I've done it because I've got a mortgage to pay and I've got, you know, mouths to feed. I've done that kind of stuff. So being able to do a job and getting paid to do something that I'm really grateful to do is a freaking dream. And I'm, I'm very lucky and also my soul is happy that I'm not stamping on it to take the money. Um, I'm not going to lie, this week's been a real tough one. Um, I've been a bit sick. I've been traveling a lot and working a lot and I've been run down. And unfortunately for me and, well, actually more unfortunately for Audrey and Gigi, um, my reactive self turns up when I'm sick. The self that jumps out and, and retaliates before I've had a chance to think of something to say that's not horrible, if you know what I mean. 
it's frustrating that despite everything, despite the work I do, the psychs I see, the meds I'm on, the guy that I've been trying to outshine, the guy that I guess I like to say the guy that I largely used to be, the guy that I've been trying to live a life of contrition about, just trying to make a living amends as I go forward, that guy occasionally claws his way back from the recesses of my amygdala, from the back of my lizard brain, the back of my lizard brain, and jumps out of my mouth and says something that hurts the people I love before I've had a chance to say anything about it. And it's really fucked, to be honest, because then I turn up again and I'm back in a room and, you know, people are upset and, you know, and I have to clean up all the bloody mess. It's shit. It really is. But it happens. It happens. And it, I mean, what can I say? It's difficult being a stepdad is one of the, it is the most rewarding and most wonderful relationship I've ever been in. To have a paternal instinct kick in for this little girl and essentially wake up one day just wanting to, I would jump in front in front of a train to save her if that's what it meant. I just I would. There's absolutely no question. Um, it can be difficult though as she gets older. Um. Because she's trying out, she's road testing what it is to be an adult. So she'll engage me as an adult. She'll challenge me as an adult. She'll push me as an adult. But then when I turn around and set a boundary, as I would to another adult, suddenly I'm a large adult male raising my voice to a upset child. And then you go, oh, fuck, what did I fucking do? And you have to, it's not ideal. It takes a while to heal that one. When there's a rupture in the relationship there, you've got to take some time to let that one heal up. Um, it's not ideal, but thankfully Audrey is very understanding that I'm still learning. I try and show her that I'm trying to figure this out as I go. And thankfully as well, thank you, Frank. Thank you. Thankfully as well, Gigi does have a lot of patience with me. Um, and she's also quite understanding, which is nice. But in the moment, it's It's icky. It's icky. Um, I can only do it one step at a time. See what I did there? Step, dad, step, one step. Yay. Hey, hey, still got it. Um, let me tell you about my guest today. You are going to love this. Phil Anderson is an Australian cycling legend. Now, cycling is a sport that for a long time, a long time, just absolutely dominated by Europeans. Phil Anderson was the first non-European rider to wear the yellow jersey in the Tour de France. Now, this is as if like the Jamaican team turning up to the Winter Olympics in the bobsled. That's what it was like. An Australian who cycles? What? But for him to actually like win the stage and, and be the leader of the race and, and, and wearing the yellow jersey, that was absolutely mind-blowing for a country that no one until that point had associated with cycling. For him to do that, the Europeans just could not believe what they were seeing. Uh, Phil is still a big part of world cycling. He does a lot for young riders and uh, regularly leads 
riders around Europe on guided tours of the very, very same mountains that the big cycling classics are ridden on and the big challenges have taken place and these classic battles have taken, taken part. You see, if you play golf, right, you're unlikely going to get a tea time at Augusta where they play the Masters or St Andrews in Scotland or whatever, unless you're a pro, all right? If you surf, you'll, you'll never get pipeline to yourself unless you qualify for the Pipe Masters. But with cycling, you and me and everyone who actually has a bicycle, any kind of bicycle, can actually test themselves against the greats across the years on the very same roads that the greats have competed on. That's the unique part of the sport. The stadiums that they play on are accessible to everyone. Like you can't go and run around on Wembley Stadium and throw and have a game of touch on Wembley Stadium. But you and your mates can just go for a fang up, up the mountain at Kosciuszko where people are going to be doing a... Um, uh, and a big official tour event uh, in the next six months. And that's, that's incredible. And uh, a lot of people don't realise this, but after swimming, which includes backyard pools, cycling is the second most popular participation sport in the country. Now, I've, I've got, I had a look at the figures. More people ride bikes than people who play AFL, league, union, netball, and people who surf combined. Think about that. Think about what you see on your television, AFL, league, union, netball, and surfing, the amount of regular Australians who do those five sports, put them all together, that's still not as many as Australians who ride bikes. It's a big deal. Cycling is a big deal. And with so many bicycles on the road, cycling safety is a subject very close to my heart. As someone who rides quite a lot, I commute when I ride when I'm living in Brisbane. But every cyclist listening... Every cyclist has had a near-death experience. Every cyclist knows someone who's been seriously injured in a traffic accident. And that's where the Amy Gillett Foundation comes in. Uh, that's where Phil is uh, a big part of the Amy Gillett Foundation. Amy Gillett Foundation campaigns at a policy level to help change traffic laws around the country. They, they push a meter matters, that message, all around Australia. In Queensland, since those laws have come in, I've noticed a very big difference when riding my pushy around. I guess, you know, as a vehicle driver, as someone who drives cars, just remember two things. Just only remember two things. Pass a cyclist like you'd pass a car, all right? And it's legal in most states, pretty sure, most states. I don't know too much about WA, but definitely uh, Queensland, definitely Victoria. It's legal to cross a solid line to pass a cyclist. So if there's a double line or a solid single line, you can cross the solid line very briefly, as you would, because the cyclist isn't very big and goes quite slow compared to your car. You can cross a solid line to pass a cyclist. So just number one, pass a cyclist like you would pass a car by changing lanes. And number two, when you go to get out of the car, passenger or driver, just remember the Dutch reach around. What's the Dutch reach around, I hear you ask? It's not what you think, though, Amsterdam, I miss you and I can't wait to get back. The Dutch reach... It basically, say if you're the driver in an Australian car, the, 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 the driver's door is at your right, okay? So rather than open the door with your right hand, you reach over and you open the door with your left hand. What that does is it turns your body. So as you open, you're actually, your body turns to reach the handle and you can check for bicycles before you open the door. Just doing those two things, and if you're in the passenger, do the opposite. Open it with your right hand. Doing those two things make you a much more cycle-friendly driver than anybody else. Uh, so here's a conversation that I had with Phil Anderson. It was uh, down in Lawn 
in a beautiful, beautiful lawn in beautiful Victoria. We recorded this the day before Amy's Grand Fondo, which is, which is a big charity event that uh, the Amy Gillett Foundation put on each year. It's a 120-kilometre ride uh, along a fully closed Great Ocean Road down in Victoria. There was around 5,600 cyclists as a part of it. It's, it gets bigger and bigger every year. It was a great ride. You've heard me talk about it on the show before. I certainly hope you enjoy it. Um, my conversation with Phil Anderson. How are you, mate? Good. Nah, happy to be here. It's bloody uh, God's country down here, mate. It really is. Just to set the scene, we have literally that's the, the South Pacific, isn't it? Or the Tasman uh, that's Sea? The Bass Strait. The Bass Strait is Bass about Strait. 57 metres to <laughs> Yeah, it's, no, it's nice. So you're right. Uh, and that's the not-so-great ocean road next to us. It's more of a tr- track. Yeah, I think that's sort of a frontage road of the, uh, <laughs> of the property here. But uh, You're in full cycling kit. You did invite, am, me, out. Yeah, did invite yeah. me out for a ride this morning. I'm sorry I didn't make it. <laughs> yeah, well, you're saving everything for tomorrow. Mate, I... <laughs> it's money I am, in the bank. You've got to spend the energy, you know, I can guarantee you that I will be in the sag wagon tomorrow. <laughs> I guarantee it. I, I, I said yes to this because I'm super passionate about uh, the AGF and what they do, and I have had no time to train. <laughs> nah, nah. Well, there we go. Time poor, you know, whereas myself, obviously, used to race. I've retired from that. Uh, I have a few things going, but, yeah, I have a lot more time for for my passions, one of still, which is uh, cycling. You do, you do keep very, very busy. Did you grow up around here? No, no, I grew up in Melbourne. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was in the Hawthorne Cycling Club. I have to say cycling because I uh, don't associate it with a footy club. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, uh, no, the cycling club there in Hawthorne is just a suburban club. And, um, yeah, How that's old were you when you first got on two wheels? 16. 16 when I started racing. But, no, yeah, but what, what about bike. the first bike? Oh, my sister and I shared a tricycle. I think, uh, you know, we would have been, I would have been maybe four or five. I had a tricycle. Know, yeah, tricycle great. Yeah, I, I, couldn't, Down the I couldn't actually ride it. I had to be on the back. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're sitting there, stand on the the tray there. Hands on the shoulders. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You know, sort of lean and try and topple. And, you know, if we top it off, if you were first back to the bike in there, you got to ride it. My trike had no no tubes. It was just hard. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what ours were. Yeah, tough. Solid steel. It was brutal. You're not that old, mate. You're bloody young. You should be. Piffle. I'm old. Before pneumatic tyres. I'm uh, I'm 42, man. I'm... (laughs) This is grey as real. I'm in the off season, so I'm growing the grey out. So. Uh, come on now, it's very fashionable to uh, put a it's few. It's the Clooney date. years, Phil. It's the Clooney years. Ah, uh, salt what, and pepper, mate. Yeah, <laughs> but I remember. What do you remember about the first time you got your own two wheels? Your own. Uh, what was it? When a, I got my, I didn't Star? actually get. Uh, it was a, a cool little Laurentia, which is a local bike shop in Hawthorne. and that was uh, I was supposed to be like twelve or thirteen. It was a three speed. So it's possibly a late bloomer because, you know, every, most kids get their bikes, you know, and they're, you know, when they're still, you know, before 10 sort of thing. Mm. And for me, two-wheeler, you know, my parents said, well, you can't get a, a bike until you stop growing, and that was never going to happen. So, I mean, I'm still growing. Although now, <laughs> now, you know, heading towards 60, I'm actually getting shorter. So, <laughs> so I guess that's what happens. You grow yeah. up and then you just diminish. Do you remember the feeling of being, you know, 12 and up until that point, if you wanted to go anywhere, you had to basically ask for a lift or take a bus or a tram. Do you remember the feeling of, oh, I can just go anywhere I want? Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Just gives you that, uh, or gave gave me that th- freedom. And it's a different age. Like it was safe. Well, you know, I considered it safe 
to ride your bike around then. You know, there wasn't the traffic what there is now, not the pressure on the roads. So it was great. Yeah, my sister and I, we used to ride all over Melbourne. You know, we didn't bother about, you know, if we had to do something like, you know, had a date and had to go ice skating or something, and then I would take a train. You know, you can't ride to the to the uh, ice rink with your girlfriend. Well, not if she didn't ride. <laughs> so, um, so sometimes it wasn't cool, but, um, yeah, I always tried to ride places. You know, that was a, uh, a great day out, you know, so uh, that was before I started racing. And ride. when did it start to become serious for you? Uh, you were like 14, not, 15? Yeah, not until I, um, yeah, not until I was 16, maybe 15, I'd seen a bicycle race and thought, geez, that is something I'd love to uh, to do. Saw a bike race and asked. What, up, for, up close? Up close, yeah. It was just a criterium, so a circuit race in, uh, in Kew, actually, close to where I lived. And I uh, asked a corner steward, you know, what's this bike racing business? I'd never seen of it, heard of it, you know, for me it was kind of freakish. And uh, the guy said, oh, yeah, there's, um, you know, clubs all over Melbourne and you race on the weekends and there's road races and track and, you know, just before mountain bike. Um, and, yeah, this would have been uh, 74, 75, so a few years ago now. And, um, yeah, I asked – and he said, if you want to find out more, just go down to the local bike shop. So I went down to Laurentia in Hawthorne and they said, uh, yeah, there's a Hawthorne club and – um, you know, go and sign up. So I went down to a, a meeting and, and joined up and and uh, lo and behold, started racing and, you know, put together a racing bike and, and uh, but then I was 16-year-old, so I was so, sort of in a junior category. So putting together a racing bike means you were hot-riding something that was not quite built as a racing no, bike? No, no. Well, like I said, I had a three-speed and had straight bars and stuff, so I had to sort of convert that and get some drop bars. It was a lot different, you know, the... Cycling now, it's, it's become mainstream and, uh, you know, you can go into the you know, bike shop and buy a, a, a racing bike, whereas back then you couldn't. Uh, you had to sort of put them together, sort of like trying to put together a Formula One car back then, whereas um, now you can go into a bike shop and, you know, buy a Tour de France bike if you want. But, you know, I didn't have the financial means and, you know, my parents... You know, what are you, bike racing, you know, you've got to be studying, you know, you've got HSC coming up and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and so, uh, so I had to do everything myself and, and uh, you know, I got some help from the club. You know, you get some old second second-hand bits and you'd sort of put together a bike and, you know, you'd ask for a bit of money for Christmas and you get a new, new front derailleur or something. And, and that's how everybody from that era uh, put together bikes. You know, you couldn't go in and buy a brand new Bianchi or, you know, half the brand's... You know, a lot of those American brands were, um, you know, only in their infancy uh, at that stage. So in many in many ways, it's a little like uh, how you see. Mm. Well, certainly I saw blokes hot rodding uh, Tiranas and um, Kingswoods and stuff. It's like this particular carburetor is in combination with this particular muffler does this exactly. You know, it was like well. Or this last race, I had a bit of trouble with this caliper. I might change that out. Oh, that's going to cost it a little too much money. I saw this bloke's got a different cassette on the back. Oh, I might try that one. Yep. Yeah, you just go out and buy a WRX yeah. or something. So you, you put getting, straight on the track. Uh, were you getting uh, like the bike magazines just pouring over every page? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was even the bike mags, there weren't that many uh, in English. So, you know, there's an English magazine. Uh, there was an Australian magazine, but there was very little information about European racing. So, you know, it took a it was a big step uh, from those early days to uh, you know actually considering it as a as a profession. Uh, now, obviously, you sound like your parents really were very focused on your academic output. 
at what point did your folks go, maybe there's something in this, little Phil's doing all right? <laughs> Uh, possibly wasn't until I was I was overseas. Really? <laughs> yeah. Not until then. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it was a bit of uh, four or five years before I started. Uh, you know, went over and represented Australia in the Com Games, and that was possibly it. You know, sort of got the Victorian team, which led to the Australian team, and then finally got to represent Australia uh, in Edmonton in '78. And uh, that was, I guess that was a bit of a breakthrough because. I got the gold medal in the road race. You were 19 years old and you show exactly, up. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. You show so, up on the Commonwealth Games team. Yeah. Come on, man. Like, this, that must have been a that must have been a thrill because all your mates would have been, you know, I'm assuming either in their career starting their apprenticeships or going to university. Yeah. And you were the odd one out just training yeah, all the time. exactly, because, you know, cycling was pretty small back then and it still is relatively small. I mean, you know, for middle-aged uh, men and women, taking it up now, um, you know, there was nothing like that then. It was, uh, you know, the fashionable, <coughs> fashionable sport, if you call footy fashionable or, or cricket or, um, you know, even tennis. Um, but, yeah, cycling was uh, left field. So I wasn't all one out. You know, there's nobody in my school. You know, I went to a good school and, you know, 1,000 students. And uh, I was the only one who was a cyclist. <laughs> and, and definitely none of those parents Right, right. Whereas now, if you went yeah. back to you know my college, and uh, you possibly find uh, you know there's a good percentage of the parents yeah ride their bikes. Were you getting pressure because you're you're tall? Were you getting pressure to play footy? Um, not really. You know, I I you know I played a few games, and um, you know I was always possibly more an individual rather than a team player. Right. Uh, you know, so I don't know. It's um, it's a cycling. It was uh, for me. It was still just like that first bike, just an escape and. And used to love it, and um, yeah. Who was the first person that looked you in the eye and said, "There's something going on here"? Yeah, I think uh, possibly the president of the club, um, Ted Sanders, a uh, great bloke. Um, you know, he had some sons who, who raced uh, both the track and the road, and uh, were very talented. And and um, you know, he said, "Phil, you know, you got you got something there, you know, you should keep it up. And, and uh, you know, he sort of took me under his wings and, um, you know, for me it's uh, inspired me. You know, he brought up some good kids and uh, and that's, uh, yeah, that was, I mean, you know, there's there's lots of little pivotal things in, in, in your career. It would be the same for you, you know, where you could have gone this way, you went that way. Yeah. And, you know, you took the right, well, you took the, a certain direction which led to where you are now and, um, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a maze out there. There's lots of distractions and... <laughs> So, the Victorian team, at what point did the Commonwealth Games at that point, I mean, I, perhaps, I don't know now, but perhaps Commonwealth Games is a little, the luster is a little, now that we're not so close to Britain anymore, hmm. the luster of a Com Games medal in Australia. But I grew up in Brisbane when the Commonwealth Games was there. Yes. And it was the greatest thing in the world yes. to, <laughs> to win the Commonwealth Games, you know, and then you, you think of that, you know, that, I think the, one of the more iconic Australian moments of sport is De Costello's gold marathon run exactly, in, the, yep, in the 82 yep, Commonwealth Games. And so I, I can imagine that Edmonton was similarly yes, you know, yeah. high of esteem. That must have been a hell of a deal to make that team. Yeah, no, it was. I mean, you know, I keep saying it's a lot different then. And, and then there, were, there was an amateur side of the sport and the professional side of the sport. And professional, I didn't know anything about. You know, I was, I was an amateur, true blue amateurs, amateurs. Um, could do the games and they could do the the Olympics and and pros couldn't back then. Okay, so um, so for us it was the highest 
the, the greatest thing you could do, um, especially coming from Australia because I didn't know about, you know, international, truly international events. I didn't know about the World Championships or I didn't ever even heard of the Tour de France or anything like that, you know, um, which was a pro event. So for me, the um, the Olympics was really, sorry, uh, the Com Games was possibly about as high as you could get. Uh, it was certainly on the pathway to, to the Olympics. So it was it was um, it was big. I mean, it was a lot bigger than the club championships yeah. <laughs> or the Australian championships. What do you remember about getting there and seeing all these riders from all over the world? Oh, yeah, guys with turbans and uh, trying to put their helmet or stuff. I don't know. I don't know if they. Were, I think. I think the next day they did the swimming as well. But <laughs> but uh, for me, it was it was an eye opener and um, you know possibly not a true reflection of of um, where my career went, but. You know, it's it's uh, it was eye opening and you know fantastic. It was culturally, uh, you know, it was, it was uh, yeah, it was enlightening. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Oh, I've spoken to a few Olympians, mate. I, I hear what goes on in those games villages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you're young and you and you're sort of, uh, you know careless and some of the things you do but um you know i was very much focused on on the riding and um yeah. you know that's what i was there for and and you know, i was just barely you know, was that your first time teenager, you know yeah it was the first time Holy first shit. time out of home you know it was like uh yeah it was it was uh well it's only you know i was only over there for a couple of weeks i think but so, still yeah no it was, it was great. that's extraordinary what yeah. was what was it like to come back to queue after that Oh, great. You know, it was good. Like, I didn't come back for any ticket tape parade or whatever they have. Um, but you suddenly you've got a different perspective on where you grew up, though. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's all a bit of a haze now because he's going back a few years. Um, but, you know, everybody was, you know, certainly recognition, you know, because, you know, friends and family and relatives, they'd heard I was doing this bike racing thing, but then suddenly... You know, I was on TV and I was, you know, uh, respected by the, by, um, by the community and, and uh, you know, possibly helped my mother and stepfather explain what the hell I was doing. Um, well, you know, you got a medal <laughs> sort of thing and or represented Australia. Um, yeah, but, you know, you don't really do it for those reasons for me. Um, you know, I was still very much an amateur and, you know, I was still true blue and oh, I'll represent the country and, you know, I'll, now I'll try and step up and do the Olympics, you know, they're going to yeah. be in Moscow in a couple of years and, um, you know, see see where that le- leads. But, you know, I, it's still at that stage I didn't have, I didn't even think about, you know, turning pro or, you know, going in to live in Europe or anything so what like was that, it? you know, just representing the country. But what got you, I mean, what got you to Europe? Oh, when I came back to uh, to Melbourne at the end of the, that year, because I went over after doing the Com Games, I went to Europe, did the World Championships, and a couple of other big events. You know, I was just spanked, and um, you know, because then you're in the real world. Not yeah, like right. Not like you're in the sort of Commonwealth thing. You're out in the real world. Yeah. You know, you're racing, you're racing against you know Eastern Bloc countries, and you know, total all the European and stuff. That's where. The, Home of the sport is, and um, came back to Australia, and uh, yeah, a guy, a gentleman in, in uh, Melbourne who was involved with the, the Hawthorne Cycling Club. He said he had a good friend who was a um, who ran a club in Paris, uh, in France, and if I would like, he could, um, you know, he would uh, he would get me a spot on the team. Wow. Just name of a team, and uh, I thought shit, that'd be a bloody great opportunity. But you know, I was bloody lined up to go to RMIT and. 
do graphics and <laughs> that was what I was, you know, especially with my parents, they, they wanted me to do that. But um, but suddenly with this medal and all the recognition, they thought, oh, shit, maybe you should run with it, you know. So, um, yeah, so I thought, you know, I, I, I uh, took up the offer and, and went over and lived in Paris and um, and I had a really good year. So, you know, one heap of races and, you know, I was an okay rider here uh, within, you know, this sort of Australian cycling community. But, um, you know, I was thrown in the deep end over there and I really, I really um, excelled in the, I don't know if it's the isolation, you know, like I didn't speak French and um, but I did really well. And, um, you know, uh, you know, by the end of the season had a, a bunch of offers on the table to uh, turn pro. Right. And of course, that meant I would have had to, you know, I had to make the decision whether I sign a contract and turn pro or come back to Australia and, you know, try and get the Victorian team, the Australian team, get selection for the Olympics. So, um, but, you know, when I was over there riding amateur in Paris, I saw a couple of professional events, which I'd never seen or heard of before. And, I, wow, I was like a kid in a candy store. Look at this, you know. These guys are like footy stars. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're like, um, you know, I'd never seen anything like that before. And um, especially in, in my sport. So I thought, shit, can't believe I got offers to turn pro, you know. So, yeah, through caution of the wind and signed. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Signed a pro contract, and that was, um, you know, never looked back. Far out. Yeah, so then what was that phone call like to back to home? Um, I'm not I coming back. Yeah, I look that happy. I mean, I'm still coming back, you know, between seasons every yeah. year. But um, yeah, you know, it meant that uh, you know it was a big commitment for me, and you know, education, everything is just sort of uh, left behind, and and um, suddenly I was, you know, at the bottom of the big league. What's that like? Because the only the only thing I could probably compare to the only experience that I've got, or many people listening, would be when you're the you know you're you're the big gun in primary school, and then you go to high school, and all of a sudden you're a kid, and there's dudes with beards in the tuck shop line, and you're like this tiny little person. Did yeah. it feel like that? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It was very daunting, um, you know, and it, it is a it is a step up. You know, you've got uh, you know big fields. Big distances, you know, like suddenly, you know, here and club races and things, you're riding, you know, 100 k's or something like that, and suddenly it's 250 k's, you know, and you get you get up the start line, and you look around, these guys are just animals. <laughs> it's like, it is just like standing at a tuck shop line, um, and you know, they're all speaking different languages. You know, my French was starting to come through because I had that one year as an amateur in France, um, and French is sort of the international 
language of the sport. So, you know, you speak to a Russian and French and Italians and whatever. So French is sort of the language we all speak to each other in. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was um, you know, pretty humbling to come out of, uh, you know, being a star in your own bloody home <laughs> and uh, step into the big league. It was a, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty daunting. Mm. What did you what did you learn about yourself pushing pushing through that? Like, what did you find within yourself to to just you know keep going? Uh, yeah, I don't know, you know, like you don't need others around you. Like, quite often you'd spend a lot of time alone training or you know you know pretty living by yourself, and you sort of come together on weekends and and uh, you know it'd be a lot easier now because you've got you know the internet, and you can Skype and everything like that. You can keep track with your friends but um, over there I was you know living a, a bloody uh, solstice existence um, you know in a, in a pretty exciting city in, in Paris um, but yeah I was just focused and uh, just you know that's you know that's all I wanted to be it was a, it was a, uh, it was a good bike racer and and, uh, and still it was you know still a long way to go you know to, to where I eventually ended up and First year did uh, heaps of races and uh, didn't do the tour the first year, but um, second year started winning. Well, I won a couple of events in my first year, but you know started getting a few little wins under my belt, and so they put me on the Tour de France team. I was on the French uh, Peugeot team, and um, by you know I didn't realise it was a big battle to try and get onto the onto the team. You know I didn't I didn't have that sort of grasp of of the culture yet but uh you know i think we had 18 riders on the team and you know they had to select eight of them to to ride the tour and um you know i was winning races coming to the tour so they put me in and all the french riders you know i was like the only (laughs) i was like the only non um non-frenchman on the on the team and so yeah we get to the tour de france and it's like wow you know this is what they talk about you know the, the big the big daddy of them all and was it like that? Was it just oh, yeah, flash no, bulbs and crowds? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was um, started in Nice that year. You know, it's a three-week event and uh, started in Nice. And, and we went around in a um, clockwise direction. So we headed towards the Pyrenees. I think day five, uh, we started in the mountains. Wow. And uh, I'd never ridden the mountains before. And uh, it was like a 175k stage, you know, reasonable length. But we had four different four mountains to go over, and and uh, you know, it's no secret. You have little cards, and you can see where the pro- the profile of the event. You can see where the mountains are, and you know, they get faster and faster. And uh, as we as we're going along the pace, and I, I'm looking out over the heads of all these bloody charging riders, thinking, shit, where's this bloody mountain? I couldn't see bloody mountain. And I ask a uh, teammate, and he says, no, no. You, and you look up. You know, I was looking over all the heads. He said, "No, no you got to look up there into the clouds, and above the clouds, you can see the peaks of these mountains." <laughs> and I, you know, I'd never seen anything like that. I'd seen the Dandenongs, and <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd seen, you know, I'd seen a, a few hills, but uh, nothing like that before. And uh, you know, suddenly I just got all wobbly in the legs. But you know, I put my head down and ass up, and just charged along with everybody else, and joined the throng of riders racing for the, uh, you know, so I wasn't far to the, the bottom of the first climb, and. And then, um, you know, our job was to look after a, a French guy on our team. Uh, my job was to push him when he needed a piss. <laughs> only in a side window. <laughs> I think it's the only sport where, you know, riders actually urinate on each other. <laughs> right. So for folks who don't quite understand, because people see, you know, 
um, a, a lot of there's a lot of guys in the team starting the race, but only one stands at the end. Uh, I believe the job is called the domestique. Yes, yes. And and your job is basically to to take a bullet along the way. You're if I'm not get me tell me if stop me from playing this wrong, mate. Um, <laughs> but you're you're blocking the wind for the star. Most of the day, yes. you're you're pulling them up mountains and basically destroying yourself, and then you you're gone for the day. You're out. Yes, and yep. you basically pull out, and the car picks you up, and that's it. You oh, well, in a tour, you have to finish every day. So, oh, right. and you actually have to finish within a time limit too. So, wow. so you still have to have a little bit left to be able to get yourself across the line. Right. So, um, but you're but one of the jobs is to because you you have to wee you're, you're out on the road for yeah, hours hours and hours and hours you have that's to right. eat you have to wee yep that's it and yep. your job is to while he is coasting yes coasting uh, hopefully it's on, hopefully it's downhill <laughs> but quite often they're coasting while they're going uphill sometimes <laughs> it takes two guys like you get one guy you know I'm out you pushing Jean Rene and there's another guy who's pushing me so actually there's a chain of you going along and one guy's you know having the Having a wee. Having a wee and the rest of us are getting a yellow, what do you call it, a, a, a yellow shower, was it? <laughs> I don't know. Isn't it interesting that in all these years of, of Tour de France coverage, they've, they've sort of very manically managed to gen- yeah. in a gentlemanly way cut away, here's a lovely helicopter shot of a castle, and yeah. then come back and then ride Quite often, again. if you look closely, you can see the riders will pull over the side of the road, but no, Jean René was one who liked riding and, you know, making the guys, you know, used to show his authority by... So no, you guys pushed me today. <laughs> oh really? Oh uh, no, but I mean that's just a, a small part of the job. But the idea is for your for your um you know your team leader to get the critical parts of the race as fresh as possible. So that means uh, you know not stopping and peeing and having to chase and get back up. And you know if he has a puncher, then you know I give him my wheel or um, you pace him up so you, you he gets in your slipstream, you slowly accelerate and and um, pull back to the uh, bunch and you know get his bottles and all that sort of thing. And the job is. Uh, it's a domestic job. So on this day five, uh, where we had these uh, first mountain range, the Pyrenees, I I got uh, all aroused, caught up in the moment, let's say, and um, totally forgot my job description. I'd peed, peed, been peed on once already that day. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I saw that corner, everybody racing for the corner, and, you know, put my ass down, ass up and bloody chased and... And, uh, you know, we got to the fir- top of the first climb and half, half the field was decimated, was gone. So only 100 guys left, you know. And the second mountain, we were down to 50 riders, you know, and I was still there. And I started recognising, you know, my heroes, the guys I had in my bloody uh, cupboard wall back home. And you were racing and, against and, them. And I'm racing against them, you know. And then, um, you know, third hill, you know, there's only like a handful of guys and, and uh, my director comes up in the car, you know, comes up in the car and uh, pull over and... Um, talk to him out the window and uh, he says, where's Jean René? Where's Jean René? And, you know, I take a look over my shoulder and, oh, shit, Jean René, that's right. What, he need to piss? <laughs> what can I do? He said, well, he's not here. He's bloody, it's two groups back. He's five minutes down. And I said, well, I'll stop and wait. I'm pretty buggered up here. I can't believe I'm still here, but, uh, you know, I can take a rest and wait for him and, and help him. Uh, he said, no, no, shit, no. You know, it's only 30 k's to go. There's only one mountain to go and you stay here. But you come and see me tonight. You know, I thought, oh, jeez. <laughs> Trouble. <laughs> Don't know what he's got in mind, but <laughs> it didn't sound too good. <laughs> so, so um, you know, then we have it's a mountaintop finish, plateau up to a ski resort. And, um, 
you know, the crowds and oh, you know, it was just bloody pretty exciting. And I could really believe, skinny and I roads believe, with yeah, people yeah, either side yeah, of yeah. you. Yeah, I'd never seen that shit before. Like I've never seen on, on TV. Like they didn't have SBS, didn't have a coverage or anything like that back then. You know, like you might see some photographs and think, oh, this is unreal. And so there I was living it. And um, all the cowbells. Yeah, yeah. It's just you know you could hear them. You know you could hear the noise coming through the crowds. You know the, we obviously had to climb up there and. Um, and uh, yeah, so in the end, it was just two of us left, and we were splitting. We were splitting for second place because there's already one guy at the road, and so I ended up getting the yellow jersey that day. And so yeah, that was my first uh, Tour de France, and you were the first non non European, yeah, yeah like to get the, the yellow yeah, jersey. Getting really freakish because uh, they'd never, you know, they'd never, uh, they didn't even know where Australia was. You know, like after um, after the show, just like the foot, you know, on football after after the stage. You go up, you go up on stage, and you get the flowers and the jersey, and they drag you off, and you go into it like a um, Tribune television Tribune, and they interview you. It's called the Top the Tour or something like that, and they have the stage winner, and you know, every day they they still have it, and it's like a bit of a panel, and so uh, so this is huge, you know. At first, you know, it wasn't a Frenchman, it wasn't a Belgian, but. A, Australia, you know, and so they, they, so what, what, what do you, how, how, how did you get here in in France? You know, it was like having somebody from Mars coming in and yeah. suddenly on the Peugeot know, team, no less, the, like the French, yeah, and French yeah, teams. That's right, and um, so they went and got a uh, a map of the uh, of the world, and uh, you know, somebody ran out and got it and came back and they just happened to have one on top of this mountain yeah that's right yeah well that yeah it was like an atlas you know so it wasn't that big but they had you know france was like uh took up uh 80 of the uh the globe uh-huh. and they had australia down here it was like a tiny little speck down the bottom i said that's where australia is down there <laughs> and, you know it talked about australian sport and and uh and they said yeah well the only thing we know about australia is the program called skippy remember skippy the bush kangaroo <laughs> yeah. that was the only thing and they were, Still playing that back in the black and white days. Yeah, this is '81. Uh, yeah, and they're still showing black and white then. And they had uh, Skippy the bush kangaroo, and so they coined me Skippy. <laughs> <laughs> and still now, when I go over there, still people chant it when I when I go by. You know, they call me Skippy. It's so embarrassing. Well, the kangaroo. Hey, strangers are chanting your name in a foreign country. <laughs> Not that bad, Phil. <laughs> Oh, no, like, do you remember? Do you remember the? Were you just caught up in the moment? Were you able to like appreciate what was happening at the time? That was not possibly, only the first possibly. time you'd been on a mountain that high. No, I, I'd never been to the mountains before. It was great. You know, I'd never seen snow and you know there's glaciers and shit. It's bloody fantastic. You know, and they flew us off in a chopper. It was like uh, suddenly it was, it was uh, you know, big change, big direction change in my uh, in my career, but. You know, so I got the yellow jersey and then uh, the next day they had a time trial. And um, so that's just when all the riders go off individually. Yeah. Of course, I go last because I'm the yellow jersey. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever been on one of those ramps before. Yeah. You go down, you know, I was afraid I was going to fall off. Hang on, did you end up having the conversation with the team manager that night? Uh, <laughs> for leaving well, no, Jean I did in front of all the riders, all the riders, you know, we had champagne, you know, all was forgotten. And oh, okay. Fantastic Phil and Sean Renee was looking rather bloody pissed off at the end of the table, but he had a bad day, so, you know. But anyway. Um, of course he had a bad day. The bloke that was supposed to hold him while he peed went and won. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so the eye had the yellow jersey and earned it. No, it wasn't, wasn't because, you know, spots of yellow. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that must have been that must have been extraordinary. But I guess from then, once you've then then you've arrived, and then it's just well, that's right. You know, like I was saying, the next day was a time trial, um, and I'd ridden time trials before. Uh, I'd ridden the, uh, the three-day potential tour uh, down here in Melbourne, and we had a time trial there, and I think I won that. Um, but still, here I was uh, at the Tour de France, and uh, like a 30k time trial, so it wasn't particularly long. But um, but I lost the yellow jersey, but I actually got third in the time trial, and I think I I, I was uh, only like 25, 27 seconds behind or something, uh, which was great in the first my first. Tour de France time trial. So, oh, wow. so, um, but that a lot of that is, you know, the getting a yellow jersey. What power they say it empowers you, and that's, you know, I believe that, you know. So suddenly I'd come from, from nowhere. Yeah, <laughs> just being a domestic. Suddenly, uh, you know, getting the yellow jersey and coming out and getting a third, third out of, uh, you know, two hundred riders in time trial. Yeah. So then I just went on. You know, I tried to defend that. Tried to get the yellow jersey back by getting little bonification sprints along the way, and it was. Uh, it was great, and um, you know, ended up coming tenth uh, in that that uh, tour, and then the next year I came back and got the yellow jersey again, and um, kept the yellow jersey for ten days, and ended up coming fifth. So um, you know, got the top ten five times, and ended up you know doing uh, thirteen Tour de France's. So what was it about what you'd been doing that broke you through up into that performance level? Uh, what did you find within you? Uh, well, you know, it's a huge learning curve. You know, firstly, you know, you're sort of going in sort of where I hadn't been before you know, in, into the mountains and you start getting confidence in yourself and, uh, you know, your skill set changes totally, you know, from being peed on to <laughs> pushing your mates to suddenly leading the team, pissing on others. No, but having other guys look out, looking after me. And I possibly never got the support, which, um, you know, I, I should have got. Uh, you know, now you see guys like um, Cadell Evans, for example, you know, he'd have a whole team, um, you know, designed around him, whereas for me it was just, you know, circumstance that, um, you know, I got the yellow jersey and suddenly, you know, the guys are writing for me and, and uh, you know, next year I'll still have to prove myself, you know, mm. I still had a couple of other guys who were, who were, who were um, you know, who were leaders as well and... Uh, you know, so I ended up left, leaving that team and, and uh, you know, getting on a team where I was the sole leader. and uh-huh. Yeah, but still, you know, there's uh, the Tour de France is only one type of event. You know, there's lots of other tours, you know, the Tour of Italy or, you know, the Tour of Spain, which is on at the moment, and, you know, big one-day classics like Roubaix or, um, you know, Tour of Flanders. And, what about uh, your what, – what changed about your headspace? Because, I mean, when you've got so many riders and it's heartbreaking, you watch people lose – 200 kilometer stages by a tire width you know so physically everyone's very similarly equipped but between the ears is where they're what sets them different yeah i think when you're when you race a lot and you know uh like when you're on the pro circuit it's 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 your job and uh you know your life is racing and you always know there's another race next week you know, I mean, there's always those ones you aim for, and yeah, if, if you're like Adele and you lose the Tour de France by a matter of seconds, it happened to him a number of times. Uh, it'd be pretty tough to take. Um, you know, I don't know how how I'd handle that or how he handled it. Um, 
but lots of other events you do and you lose, you know, you lose, you lose a lot more than you, than you win, obviously. And so you kind of train yourself to defeat, I guess. Um, but more importantly, how to come back after that defeat, you know. And quite often, you know, next day you start training for the next event or the next year. You know, you've got goals throughout the year, and yeah, you've got to learn to just be able to move on. Is that what you take with you when you're off the bike, when you're just out and about in your life with your yeah, family? Yeah, probably still, probably still do it now. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I'm not really competitive anymore like I used to, um, used to be, but, uh, you know, you still have goals and, and, um, you know, in your life, it's not, not so much on the bike now, I just play on the bike. It's, it's, uh, a lot more enjoyable what I do now than what I did then. I like, yeah, financially it's rewarding and, and, um, you know, it's good to look back. And you asked earlier, when did you sit back and realise what you'd done? I possibly don't do that, didn't do that at all during my career. It's huh. only, only once you retired that you sort of, sort of look back, take yeah. a deep breath and go, wow, that was, that was a bloody fairy tale. <laughs> <laughs> well, you still get um, – to, to say that, you know, you, you were a little older than me, not a lot, but to be, uh, you know, a man that still gets to say, I play – that's pretty rare. Not mm. many men get to do that. No, like what I do now is great. Like I just got back from a road trip. We just went up, up to Queensland. You know, rode all the way. Just camped in a tent, and you know, just you know, have a bike, which is a uh, sort of an all-terrain bike, not a road bike, and not a mountain bike. But it's um, it's uh, it's great. You can go. You know, we we're going through sand dunes on the beach. We we're going um, mountains, highways. It was fantastic. And um, and it's just about having fun, you know. It's just about, uh, you know. I don't like, you know. We're doing the the um, the grand fondo, Amy's grand fondo tomorrow. And to me, it doesn't matter if I'm first or last, or you know, I might take a shortcut or just sit in a pub halfway, or you know, I'm not in any <laughs> rush. I'm not trying to qualify. Like you know, there's obviously people here who have agendas and they want to qualify for the world championships. That's great. But I think, you know, because I I live such an intense uh, racing competitive life years ago you know that's all been beaten out of me so now I'm just, it's just about having fun so obviously you're on the road you've been riding very seriously since you were 16 mm. you would have had i'm gonna say countless times where you were like fuck that car nearly killed me <laughs> how am i still alive is that why uh, the amy gillett foundation and you sort of came to alignment uh yes I mean, I think, you know, we, we want to make the, the, uh, the roads a safer place. And, you know, it's a problem all over the world. However, here in Australia, there's not the culture of, of acceptance of, of um, bicycle as a, as a ways of commuting or recreationally or for whatever reason you'd be on the bike. And so, um, you know, it's going to take uh, some time to change that and... The way it was going, it was never going to change. However, you know, possibly the last decade, the last, um, and it's getting that acceptance is 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 growing, and it's not an overnight thing. We're talking, you know, generation or you know, get the message out there with kids. You know, I just got back from Queensland, and uh, the meter rule came through there. I think two years ago, and. I was riding with uh, with some cyclists up there, and they say it really has made a difference. They've noticed it, and that's great, you know. And you just have to like it's it's going to be it's very hard to police or uh, to monitor or you know how do you legislate that you know on a legal basis. But it has people talking about it, 
even if it's on talk back and you've got these, you know, these irate drivers will come through or irate cyclists, you know, two years ago they weren't talking about it. So now they're talking about it and thinking about it and, you know, when somebody comes up behind a cyclist, they're, they're making a decision um, and they're thinking about it. So, um, you know, if that's all we get, it's a step. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, you sort of see where we've come in the last 10 years and, and you see if we can keep the momentum moving forward in the next uh, 10 years, you know, who knows where we'll be in 50 years. Mm. Um, I wish I, I was um, had the good fortune or un- misfortune to spend a couple of years working in the Netherlands. Yes. And, like, once you've been It's part there, of the life there. Yeah, the once culture. you've seen people my mother's age, they get around on a bicycle. That is how they get – they don't own a car. That's no. how they live. Yes. They, they, they come to and from the grocery store with – and the whole society moves on bicycles – Cars are like beyond a luxury. It's just like, you know, I don't really need one because I ride my bike to the train station and then, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's part of uh, life over there. And, um, yeah, the Netherlands is a uh, perfect example of that, but, you know, also in Asia and, yeah, um, you know, it's just uh, amazing in France. And, you know, people don't ride themselves. They know somebody that does ride or, mm. and even, you know, people that race, uh, you know, and they give you space. And, you know, now I have a, a travel company. We take people over to uh, France every year and, and people that haven't ridden there, they, the first thing they say is, I can't believe how patient the uh, drivers are. You know, we'll, we'll be in a group and we'll be, you know, turning across a lane and all the cars will just wait behind. Whereas in Australia, you know, people will be winding down the window and abusing and, and uh, you know, they're just not used to sharing that space. Whereas in Europe, it's, uh, it's accepted. So... Yeah, it'd be a dream to have uh, the respect um, that that, uh, that they show in in Europe, and you know that's what we're we're aiming to do with the foundation. Well, it benefits the whole community. That's the well, thing. You're not just slowing drivers down. You're as the general health benefits from all people riding bicycles. Ultimately, the bottom line is less <laughs> pressure on the public health system. It's, you know, exactly. there's so much yeah. benefit for everyone. Yeah, well, living in, you know, I live in the, in the country, so it's not so easy, but uh, living in the city, there's no reason why you can't, you know, a lot of the, the little trips you do just down to the grocery store or, you know, to the neighbourhood, um, taking the kids to school, there's no reason why, you know, that couldn't be done on the uh, on, on bikes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can understand, <clears throat> you can understand in the past, uh, you know, it, it has been quite dangerous and daunting. Uh, you know, if you've got children, you wouldn't just throw them straight out on the on mm. the uh, on the main road. But you know, there are bike paths, and and there is this acceptance which is uh, starting to come through, and and uh, that's what we want to see. You know, in the in the, you know in the future. You mentioned something earlier, and you know, if you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. Um, you mentioned that you have a stepfather. Yes. How old were you when your stepfather showed up? Uh, I was probably about six, seven. <clears throat> I am about three months away from becoming a, an official stepfather. Oh. Uh, she was 10 when I met her. She's 12 now. Um, wh- what do you got for me? <laughs> what do I need to know? Uh, well, you know, it's possibly not going to change that much from what it is now. Um, you know, so you're getting married soon? Yeah, I'm getting married in December and uh, when I met Audrey, uh, Gigi was 10, Gigi's 12 now, so they're in the next room watching the, uh, the cycling on the telly. <laughs> um, yeah, I think just, um, yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. 
you know, I don't think, uh, you know, I think my stepfather, you know, he died recently, so I can say anything. But, but um, you know, there was, I guess the honeymoon was before for, for, for myself and my slightly old sister. Uh, for us, the honeymoon was prior to getting married. And so once they got married, you know, his behaviour changed a little bit and, you know, we kind of like you know, pushed out of the way a little bit. Uh, that's how we felt. So I wouldn't change anything. Okay. You know, just uh, just keep going the way that it has uh, how how the relationship has evolved. You know, I don't think a marriage should change uh, anything. Uh, you know, in the in the relationship and behaviour. It's I I was completely unprepared that I would fall in love with a kid too. Yeah, that's the thing that. Well, that's great because she's yeah. so similar to her mum. Yeah, and the things I love about her mum, she does too. Yeah, you know? my stepfather, he didn't uh, fall in love with me. Oh, or my, sorry my, to hear that, uh, Phil. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I'll it's hope bring up something yeah. uncomfortable. <laughs> but uh, my uh, partner, uh, she's got two uh, older sons, and uh, when I met, when I met Anne, uh, Bevan was thirteen, and Dylan was possibly eighteen. So. 18 and 19, so, um, yeah, relationship at different ages between a father or stepfather and a, and a son or daughter, um, you know, it does, it does change. Uh, it does change. And, yeah, I'm from my uh, – I didn't meet my father, my, my real father, until I was like 25. Oh. So that was a whole other thing too because, you know, I had to describe what he looked like when I met him at the airport in uh, Seattle or wherever it was. Wow. Because <laughs> I didn't even know what he looked like. Um so yeah, it's funny how all that uh, all that sort of rolls on. But um, yeah, the best thing is not to change. Yeah, just be who you are, and, and you know, let your emotions just go where they where they take you. Well, I'm trying to I'm I'm trying to just uh, like bring her down here and expose her to to, to cycling and uh, yeah, no, it's my pretty, uh, that's great. My friend. Uh, um, Dr. Brady O'Donnell is racing this afternoon at the Criterium yep. and she said, bring her down, I'll introduce her to all the girls. I'm like, yeah, good, good. Hey, Gigi, look at all these, you know, powerful women riding bicycles. This yeah. is what you can do too, <laughs> you know. So I'm trying to, because she's quite tall. She's uh, she's a tall and very athletic kid. Yeah. Um, currently loves water polo because she loves to just beat shit out of people. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, I wish I occurred that in the cycling. But, uh, <laughs> well, that's great. I mean, introduce that, but... You know, you'd like her to be able to ride in a safe environment. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, yeah, you know, I mean, it's everybody. Everybody benefits. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Just before I let you go, you touched on something before, and I was just hoping we could kind of end on it. Uh, no, not, not another piss story. No, 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 not another piss story. <laughs> but you mentioned that the thing you kind of briefly touched on it, and I, I cut you off because I'm terrible. Um, you mentioned that the thing that you learned how to do was to accept that the defeat was a part of what you did. Yeah. And that there was way more defeats than there were, were victories. What would you say to people who are listening that are never going to ride competitively? They're probably never going to compete in sport, you know, competitively, but in their lives they are going to face defeat along the way. What would you say to them about that? Yeah, we all face uh, defeat, um, you know, when you don't get your own way. <laughs> Sometimes you're doing something which you shouldn't be doing and uh, you don't, don't get away with it, <laughs> which is also, you know, being defeated. Um Oh, look, uh, don't take it for granted, you know. I, I, you know, we're only on this on this planet for a um, short time and, and uh, you shouldn't take anything for granted and, uh, you know, just think of the, the wins as wins and, and 
not winning is not necessarily a loss, it's just not a win. You know, you get up the next day and, and try again or realign your goals or, um, you know, you've got to be realistic in your, in your goals too. Nothing wrong with aiming higher than than what you think you could, you know, achieve. Um, you know, and sometimes those have to be adjusted along the way. Sometimes yeah. it's... It's tough to though. It's tough to realign those goals. You know, it's tough to accept that maybe I can't get as far as I thought. Yeah, yeah. I guess some people are, uh, you know, just made up a bit differently than others, and can take uh, defeat easier. Yeah, I guess you know, can roll over and and uh, pick <laughs> themselves up. Yeah, I mean, we're not all all you know exactly the same. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I can't thank you enough. It's been great. No, oh, it's been uh, it's been fun, and uh, thank you, Phil. I hope to join you. Unfortunately, batch shoots right across the Tour de France, oh, so okay. I, I'm not going to be able to come and join you until my show gets cancelled. Uh, okay, <laughs> so I'll come and talk to you about defeat. <laughs> so in the meantime, we can ride tomorrow. There we go. I'll, I'll be I'll be the one in the back in the sag wagon. Oh, I'm sure you'll make it. I'm sure you'll make it. Good I'm just going to take your photo real quick. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Okay. Cool, man. Thanks. That was Phil Anderson. Find him on Twitter at Skippy Anderson, Skippy underscore Anderson, A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so very much for listening. Have a fantastic week. Until we speak next time, pass cyclists like you would pass a car. And remember the Dutch reach around. It's good for you, so I'm told. Until we talk next time, thank you so much for supporting the show. Everybody on Patreon, I want to give you all a big, beautiful hug because without you, there is no show. So if you support the show on Patreon, know that I would buy you a cup of coffee anywhere, anytime, because that's what you give to me every month. So thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, I've got to uh, take a young girl to water polo. Pretty sure she's still talking to me. (laughs) Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com